0: That commercial, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? (laughs) Would you join with me in a word of prayer? And gracious Heavenly Father, as we come into this place, we do so, Lord, with that, that sense of familiarity. This is a sanctuary set aside in our hearts for us to meet together with you. And there's something very special about coming into your sanctuary today, for Lord, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, by which we remember. Uh, you and Lord, we've celebrated baptism by which, Lord, we have committed ourselves to you. And Lord, there is something about us that that continues to refer to that standard prayer. We we want to sense your presence, but Lord, there is even more than just a matter of sensing your presence. It's more than just a matter of getting close to you, Lord. I pray that even now our spirits, our hearts might be open, that your spirit might be able to to bring to heart and to mind what your presence brings to us. That in your presence, Lord, we might be able to sense how your heart is opened wide to us. And that Lord, in your presence we might be made aware, Lord, of how committed you are to the to the mission of salvation. That in your presence, Lord, we might be overwhelmed by discovery of precisely your desire to embrace us to yourself. And with that, Lord, then, we pray that we might be able to respond to you and your presence with thanksgiving. This I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Now, I don't know that if, if you have come across a, a common criticism that is often laid against salvation. I'm pretty sure you have. Uh, The criticism is usually leveled this way. God has too narrow of a mind. There will be some who will read a passage like John chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but through me. They will hear that and they will be offended because they want options. We insist that God provide alternate routes how small-minded of God to limit everything down to Jesus Christ. I remember in the 70s, uh, having myself first come to know Christ, uh, one of the symbols that came out of the Jesus People movement was the raising of an index finger in the air, one way. That was kind of the symbol that we, that we had, one way, one way. And I had friends, actually, who took issue with that. Their, their, their question was, what type of God would provide only one way for salvation? It's a a troubling question sometimes, especially in a world that that, that thrills in options and and different ways that are available. So I was really intrigued then whenever I took a class in seminary and one of my professors, R.C. Sproul, took that question up. Uh, And behind that question of a narrow-minded God, Dr. Sproul saw a very serious accusation being made. And that accusation is that God has not done enough to provide redemption to humankind. And so in response, and these are from my notes, he said this. And it's a list of suppositions, so follow with me on them. Let us suppose that there is a God who is altogether holy and righteous. Let us suppose that God freely creates mankind and gives to mankind the gift of life. And let's suppose that he sets his creatures in an ideal setting and then gives them the freedom to participate in all of the glories of the created order with freedom. And let us suppose, however, that God imposes only one small restriction upon them with the warning that if they violate that restriction, they will die. And let us suppose that for no just cause, the ungrateful creatures (laughs) disobeyed the restriction the moment God's back was turned. And suppose then that he discovered their violation and instead of killing them, he chose to redeem them instead. And let us suppose that immediate descendants of those first transgressors broadly and widely increased the disobedience and hostility toward their creator to the point where the whole world became rebellious to God and each person in it did what was right in their own eyes. And then also let us suppose that God still determined to redeem these people and freely give special gifts to one nation of people in order that through them the whole world then would be blessed. And then let us also suppose that God even delivered those people from poverty and enslavement to a ruthless Egyptian pharaoh. And then let us suppose that as soon as they were liberated, that nation rose up in further rebellion against God. And suppose, then, that they took his law and they violated it consistently. And then let us also suppose that God, still intent on redemption, sent specially endowed messengers to plead with his people to return to him. And then let us also suppose that the people killed those divine messengers and mocked their message. And let us suppose, then, that the people then began to worship idols of stone and things fashioned by their own hands. And then let us also suppose that these people invented religions that were contrary to the truth of the real God and began to worship creatures rather than the Creator. And then let us also suppose that in in an ultimate act of redemption, God Himself became incarnate in the person of His Son. And suppose this Son came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it. But let us suppose that this son was rejected, slandered, mocked, tortured, and murdered. (laughs) Yet suppose that God accepted the murder of his son as punishment for the sins of the very persons who murdered him. And let us suppose that this God offered to his sons murderers total amnesty, complete forgiveness, transcendent peace that comes with the cleansing of all guilt, victory over death, and eternal life and complete joy. And then suppose that God gave these people as a free gift the promise of a future life that would be without pain, without sickness, without death, and without tears. And then let us suppose that God then said to these people, there is only one thing, only one thing that I demand. I demand that you honor my only begotten Son, that you worship Him and serve Him alone. Suppose that God did all of that would you now be willing to say to him, God, that is not fair. You haven't done enough. (laughs) If man has indeed committed cosmic treason against God, what reason could we possibly have that God would provide any way of salvation, let alone one? In light of the universal rebellion God called sin, the issue is not, why is there only one way? But the question we should be asking is, why is there any way at all? I know of no other answer to that question, why is there any way at all, other than to say, the grace of God. Grace of God. If anything, these suppositions of history, in fact, and in it, we find a God who does prove himself over and over and over again, offering invitations, providing options, but being rejected again and again until, finally, all roads lead to Jesus. And that chasm between God and man, it's huge. And were anyone to scout out the rim of the earth, seeking options, looking for a pass, trying to find a bridge, there is only one who stands at that crossroads, and it is at the cross that we find Jesus Christ. And it is to this point, then, that we return now to the Gospel of Luke. And there I'd invite you to join me at Luke chapter 13 as we arrive at verse 31. Open your Bibles there to that. The very first words that we find there in verse 31 tie this passage that we'll look at this morning right back to what we had two weeks ago. to To the end of chapters 31 through 35 goes back to the teaching that Jesus began in verse 22. And you see that in verse 31 because it begins with a very simple little phrase. It says, in that same hour, which means that within minutes of saying what he had just said in the previous passage, Jesus got a reaction. So what did he just said? What is the context then for us to understand this? Go back to verse 22. It begins with a question of salvation, where someone steps out of the crowd and says, how many people are going to be saved? Now, I'm not going to repeat my sermon from two weeks ago, but I do have to revisit the issue in order to, for this week to make any sense in your mind it was evident that it was beginning to dawn, at least on a few in the crowd who were following Jesus, that he was an authority when it came to salvation. And that, in fact, he had come with a specific and of holy purpose. If you remember, that one key verse that unlocks the entire Gospel of Luke is found in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It was, become, it was evident that, that at least a few were beginning to get that point. Jesus is a salvation authority. And if you go back to that question in verse 22, you may remember that he didn't answer the question the way we would expect. He didn't give a number as to how many would be saved, but instead he defined the principle by which anyone who would respond could be saved, the principle of salvation. Enter by the narrow way, he said. And what is that narrow way? That narrow way is Jesus himself. We read that in John chapter 14, verse 6. In that very same passage, that seems to scandalize the modern, modern mind. When Jesus said, I am the way. What is the narrow way? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And with that, the grace of God is defined in no uncertain and very specific terms. It is focused and it is fixed upon our Lord Jesus Christ. That the burden of salvation rests upon His shoulders. Which then raises a whole other bundle of questions about salvation. If it all comes down to Jesus, <clears throat> can I count on Him? I, I, mean, I mean, is He up to the challenge? Does he even have a heart for that mission? Can I count on him to get her done? You get a sense of that right away when only minutes after defining himself as the one and only narrow way, some Pharisees, in verse 31, come to Jesus and seek to save him. Almost as if they are determined to save the Savior. In verse 31 it says, some Pharisees came to Jesus and they said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. You're doing a good thing. we would like to believe that you are who you say you are and what we're beginning to discover about you. You better get out of here because it all might go into jeopardy. And the way Jesus responds reveals something about him. His presence revealing something about his character. And what we see in there is utter determination to complete the mission of salvation. He is up to the challenge, and he embraces it. Take a look. First, look at verse 32. Jesus responded to them by saying, You go tell that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow and on the third day. I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Now, those are just two verses, but those two verses are just cram packed with meaning. So let me unpack a few of the, uh, of the key items. First, there is no doubt about his determination. Look at the words I will drive out, I will reach my goal, I must <laughs> keep going. Nevertheless, I don't care what stands before me. As one of my old football coaches said of our star player, he said, there is no quit in that boy. There is no quit in Jesus. Just steely-eyed determination. And the type of determination that does two things, it cuts the challenges that stand before him down to size, and then it also accepts the cost of that commitment. Those two things. Look how that, he, he cuts that challenge down to size. He puts it into perspective. Herod is out to kill him. Who is Herod? The king. And to put it in sheer raw animal terms, Herod is a lion, the king of the jungle. And while Herod may have thought of himself as a lion, and everybody else may have trembled before him as if they were a herd of wildebeests on the Serengeti plain, hearing a roar from the From the palace to Jesus, he was nothing more than a fox. And calling Herod a fox had a double meaning. In the Jewish mind, the fox was typified as a low and crooked, cunning animal. What a contrast to a lion, which was also typified as something majestic and honorable. In the eyes of Jesus, Herod was neither a great man nor a straight man. No, no matter what, he may have thought of himself. And Jesus was not afraid of a fox or anything a fox could do. Now sometimes we see the powers that stand between us and Jesus, and we might find ourselves intimidated. We think that we're facing lions. They're, they're, they're only foxes. Look at this, Jesus himself, he is the lion, the lion of Judah, the king of kings and the lord of lords. Don't dare let any power in this world scare you away from him or stand in your way. He's not doing that either as he comes to you. He knows who he is and he knows also what he must do. Back to verse 32 and verse 33 put two phrases together. In verse 32, he says, On the third day, I will reach my goal. And in verse 33, he says, Prophets die in Jerusalem. Now, the determination of Jesus Christ not only cuts challenges down to size, but it also then accepts the cost of the commitment. Does that phrase, the third day, sound familiar to any of you? It speaks of his death and resurrection. It speaks of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fullness of his passion. And the words he uses here nails his mission to the image of the cross. And the phrase we have here translated in verse 32 is, I will reach my goal. In the Greek is the word tetelamunai, which is rooted in the very same word that Jesus spoke from the cross when he said tetelestai. It is finished. I will reach my goal, Jesus says. And on the cross, he says, I have finished that goal. The price has been paid in full. The door of salvation is opened wide. I am the way and the truth and the life, mission accomplished. And his plan of salvation will not be denied. And even more, his offer for you stands firm. Look at verse 34. And looking at Jerusalem, Jesus revealed the true passion of his heart, the nature of his heart, the passion within it. He says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, how am I gather your children together like a hen? Gathers a brood under his wings. There are a lot of technical details details packed into these two verses, more than I can deal with in the limits of this sermon, but, but that's okay. The bottom line is what I want you to see. And in that, you see the heart of Jesus Christ. Three more times in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus reveals his heart when he looks at Jerusalem. He does it here. He does it in chapter 19 and 21 and in 23. Each of those times, it is evident that when he looks to Jerusalem, he has, he has overwhelming passion, even weeping, so great was his vision for love of his people and what, it, what Jerusalem represented, God's people. Gathered together into his presence. He yearns for that.